Welcome, welcome, welcome to the working that is Coronanaut Chronicles. My name is Bill, and I will be your guide on this particular Sonic adventure. The show is, of course, sponsored by mysticalwares.com. Uh, Derek is not here with us today, but I am joined by two other Chrononauts, and we will hear from them in just a moment. First of all, uh, well, this being a working, there are parts, there are steps to it, and these are our show segments, and we have four of them, so there's four parts or steps to to this working. This is uh, been thinking about this uh, over the past week, so always going back and refining and and re rehashing or not rehashing but uh, you know just making sure that uh, everything is neatly defined so the first step is the first step and and the first segment because sometimes i will mention these in reverse uh, is is uh, the almanac segment and the goal or the end the end point to this is really uh, about awareness it's being aware of what is in store for us uh, in the coming week as far as planetary alignments and energies go and it also can include other tidbits like uh sometimes it'll have saints feasts on there so this is uh simply to expand our awareness and it uh ties in nicely with don miguel ruiz's uh four agreements he talks about three masteries which i think we cover them all in this show but uh, one of them is the mastery of awareness so that is that is step one the first step to the working and next step is the gratitude segment and the point behind this is the mastery of love the mastery of intent which is uh, synonymous with god so the the point behind this uh, segment isn't just to come on the show and do it once a week right it's to uh, perpetuate the state of gratitude and connect our hearts and our minds together as one and uh, live and move in that bubble throughout the week right so that is step two Step three is where we expand, right? So I think this is a good a good explanation or definition for this. The silver segment is step three. We expand. We learn something new, and this is uh, sometimes, uh, often, uh, will include current events, right? But but it's not not uh, the headlines you're going to find in most other you know uh, current event podcasts, right? There's plenty of others. Uh, that do that more more than I'm into, so uh, we'll cover other other stories, right? But uh, in the event that you know we do cover something uh, uncouth, right? Uh, it's always good to remember that this too shall pass. Hence, uh, hence the silver, right? The silver lining, looking for silver linings, and it's all silver is also a currency, right? So this is uh, uh, learning, you know, using uh, current events. Uh, expanding knowledge you can you can you know make some analogies there if you want uh, and uh, the step four right the last step is about transformation this step is um, about uh, becoming uh, out of becoming what we're meant to be right uh, it's meant to be a reminder of the power that the each that is inside each and every one of us and moving from a victim mentality to a hero mentality or at least keeping the hero mindset right so this is about transformation perspective and sword is is a, is a uh, allusion to the suit of swords in the tarot which has to do with thinking and uh, carl Jung describes thinking as a decision-making faculty 
This is where uh, we discuss ideas of uh, mind alchemy, I guess. So yeah, transformation, step four, sword, sword six. So kind of a little bit of a longer explanation there at the beginning, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, that was due. And now we'll move on to the almost the excuse me the old farmer's almanac. Today is of course a, a, a federal holiday, Columbus Day, depending on if you live in the United States. It's also Thanksgiving in Canada, and it's also Indigenous Peoples Day. So happy all of that, everyone. But that is, and that, that is something that's listed in the almanac, by the way these other holidays and feast days and whatnot so tuesday uh, we're looking at uh, moon and venus are conjunct and pluto goes stationary to uh to, to coming out of retrograde right since uh he's been in retrograde since may 1st so that begins to reverse on tuesday uh thursday is i just thought this was interesting national farmers day shout out to farmers and uh, if you if you don't go to farmers market maybe Maybe check that out this weekend. Go down there, get some honey, get some local honey. It's good for you. And then uh, let's see. Saturday we've got the new moon. There's a lot of go, a lot, a lot going. Excuse me. We have a lot going on on Saturday. We've got the new moon, and we have a solar eclipse, which will uh, look like a ring of fire compared, uh, uh, depending on where you are on the globe. Right. Uh, the the new moon is not uh, big enough to totally eclipse the, the sun. So. Uh, the outline edges will be visible still hence it's called the, the ring of fire and uh, also with all that going on on saturday uh, we have a conjunction between moon and mercury so at the mercury moon and the sun all doing things on saturday on sunday we have moon and mars that are conjunct and that closes out the week which brings us to the gratitude segment and i guess i will go ahead and start because i've been talking for this long so far and why not continue right uh so recently uh kind of along the theme of the fall equinox and things falling into place or maybe uh, potentially breaking um, my my gratitude has to do with uh, functioning garage doors you know you never really appreciate the value of something until it breaks or you don't have it for a little bit, right? So yes, I had to get, uh, aside from all my other water woes recently, if you've been following along with the uh, plumbing adventures here in uh, in Michigan, uh, yeah, my garage door spring just decided to uh, not be a spring anymore the other day. So uh, nobody was hurt, but uh, it uh, is in working order as of now, as of this afternoon, so I'm grateful for that. And it looks like we lost Ben. And, but Adam is here. Adam, uh, thanks for being here. And uh, what's going on, buddy? What are you grateful for? Oh, same. Right back at you, Bill. Are you there? Yeah. 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 Oh, oh good. Good. I was uh, grabbing my phone to see if I got a message from Ben. But uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe he'll join us later. Maybe not. Not to worry, though, we are still here, and I have, uh, I do have a show prepped for us. So, Adam, what, uh, what do you, what have you been grateful for this week? 
I'm going to go along the same lines of you as reliable technology. Specifically, timekeeping and watches. It's something that is, I don't think uh, people uh, appreciate how uh, important of a, a step that is. And even if it's just for metering your own day and making sure you get things done. But uh, yeah, a simple uh, quartz clock. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually wanted to bring this up on, I don't know, make a segment out of it because I was watching a uh, Amazon documentary about the uh, two-door monastery farm practices, right? And one of the the only pieces of technology that the monasteries had back in the two-door times was time timekeeping devices, right? Clocks. And they were, you know, super advanced and mechanical. But uh, what this did was it freed up time because they would have a timekeeper. They, I mean, they pray, I don't know, five or eight times a day or, or whatever it is when you're a monk. Uh, but it's a lot, right? <laughs> so they have to have somebody keep track, you know, ring the bell when it's time to pray. So, uh, but with the advent of this timekeeping device clock, they, uh, they, you know, that person didn't have to be around because the bell would just chime. And they could even adjust the uh you know everything was adjustable you know to uh, to change with the seasons but uh, what i found most interesting was that they they divided the day up into basically planetary hours is what it broke you know was broken down to Uh, each each hour of the day wasn't necessarily an hour but so because the light changes you know, the length of day changes throughout the year, they would make adjustments so they could fit, you know, 12 hours in nighttime, 12 hours in daytime and have them, you know, still get get in within the time frame of lightness and darkness. So some of them were longer than an hour, some of them were shorter than an hour. That is, if I'm understanding this correctly, but yeah, so in the, the planetary hours is, is, from what I understand, used a lot in, in ceremonial magic, which we will get into a little bit that is absolutely true in the silver segment yeah so okay cool right so it's not just no no i've done um some uh rituals from um gordon white i think that's his name right he's been on uh, 13 questions um gordon white uh yeah his chaos protocols book and there's a lot of um you know pointing in the direction of certain uh, star systems Yeah, I have. Uh, I haven't actually read. I have. I have one of Gordon's books. I have not read it. The Chaos Protocols one. Oh, I highly recommend it. But yeah, the uh, ceremonial magic is definitely something uh, I'm, I'm interested in. I don't. I don't really. I don't, I don't practice anything. Right. It's just you know fascinating to me. Kind of probably had a little bit to do with my. Uh, inspiration to um, discover Freemasonry a little bit. Just out of curiosity, if nothing else. But uh, yeah, so that, but that, I guess that brings us to the silver segment. Um, not really a, a news story here, but there was, I wanted to hear what your experience was 
Adam, with the emergency broadcast test that happened on the fourth, did you did your phone go off? Did you, like what are your opinions about about this message? Because I don't know, it seems to have got everybody's you know everybody's hyped up about it, right? Or they were anyway. But it's also interesting that Russia had the same exact test on the same day. Did you know that? By the way, no, I did not. However, I will say, based on what everybody was talking about, like frequencies being activated, uh, the the frequencies everybody was talking about were incapable of being produced by uh, cell phones anyway. So, um, I I don't know why it would be something they would tell you about. I think it would just get done. I'm more on the Lily Wave uh, uh, track that the signals themselves are used to modulate the magnetic uh, environment that we're in, which can influence mood. Pretty sure there's like a patent out there for that technology. Searchable, like you can go find it. Again, on- at least what I was hearing that it was, you know, going to go into like, you know, 20 or 30, you know, or, you know, so many thousands of, uh, you know, gigahertz um, to activate the graphene inside your body. Yes, that was that's at least what I had heard anyways. But mm-hmm. the, the frequencies that they were purporting, your, your phone, the, the, the speakers are just incapable of producing. But who knows? Maybe they've baked in some, you know, micro technology we don't know about. Right. Trojan horse. I've always wondered, like, uh, you know, Bluetooth devices are so easy um, or so cheap to make the chips for them. And they're in everything. Everything is Bluetooth. Every accessory is Bluetooth. And I'm like, you know, it would be great. Create a subnet uh, of Bluetooth devices within the United States. If they can talk to each other, boom, you've got a way to siphon data off. So certainly wouldn't be surprised if we were being spied on by all of our uh, little gadgets. Isn't that kind of how the ring network, the doorbells work? Like they're, they can like feed off of each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same thing with like an Echo or uh, an Alexa. Uh, Yeah, they do actually uh, technically share your signal with the outside. You know, uh, if anybody has a Comcast uh, router, it's doing the same thing by default. Shungite is is very helpful in in mitigating uh, any any harmful effects from electromagnetic frequencies, by the way. Just throwing that out there. But uh, yeah, that that was the whole, uh, the activating the graphing thing was the whole conspiracy idea behind the hype i think is that it was going to turn everybody to zombies is is what i think the uh, everybody was kind of uh, worried about there but i did hear about people like putting their phone in, in faraday cages and all that good stuff so i don't know kind of a little over overreaction from no, when they want to trigger something it'll it'll just get done there'll be no warning yeah I would say the other thing that could be is it was a psychological operation to see how people would react. You know, uh, put that disinformation out there, synchronize a bunch of tests just to see, you know, what does the populace do? Yeah, I just don't see what the big, the big hubbub was. Like, yeah, I got, I got two messages, actually. My phone went off twice. Oh, man, you got a double dose. You got boosted. I did. One of them was a presidential. If If you have boost mobile, you're even in even more trouble. Well, what's going on with boost? You got triple boosted. Hmm. Keep hearing, I keep seeing commercials for boost for iPhone 15s. I didn't know that they were on number 15 already. And having troubles. 
speaking of uh 15 uh mississippi is the 15th state of the okay i don't know it's probably not true mississippi is not the 15th state of the union but needed a segue to get this uh water we have another water uh another water story and i think that this is interesting timing just because there's actually two stories here adam i'll put them both in the chat if you wanted to look uh given that we speak we spoke about desalination the desalination of water taking the salt out of water on the last show right so there's these two news stories about the mississippi river uh number one i, I guess there's a drought happening right so uh, new orleans braces for drinking water emergency that's uh, from cnbc and then axios is talking about uh, new orleans saltwater intrusion from uh from the gulf right so not only do they have a drought going on but there's salt water that is, that is coming up into the, into the city and i was reading the uh the article here and it's saying that it's eventually going to uh mix with uh, the fresh water enough to where they're going to have to release uh something from upstream to keep uh to keep the city tap water from being you know contaminated too much so just uh thought it was an interesting timing yeah, another another time reference there. Everybody uh, counts seconds with Mississippi. Oh yeah, there you go. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. Yeah, in fact, I, I'm sure we've talked about it before, but uh, in the time before having accurate time measurement, um, the, uh, there was a old uh, recipe book, like uh, a book of potion type stuff that was found for curing diseases. And um, these scientists had looked into it. This was on a, an episode of um, Radio Lab, uh, where they covered this. And essentially, um, it was uh, for getting rid of styes. And they said, well, this is great because this is something that based on the description, we know exactly what it is so we can make this. And it had this very elaborate recipe where you take and, you know, you, you take a certain type of cauldron, you uh, heat it up to a certain amount, you sing a certain uh, apocrypha or this certain song so many times, um, you know, uh, you do all these things and you take and use like cheesecloth to take it out. And it's this whole thing. It seems like it's a very magical practice. It's like you're singing and you're stirring in certain directions and then you're taking something out and you're letting it sit. Well, they ended up doing this and they found out not only did it get rid of styes, but it was highly effective at fighting uh, staphylococcus. So like a staph infection and not only that, like MRSA, um, which was phenomenal because they're like, wow, this is a, an ancient medicine. Why did they stop using it if it, if it works so well? The first thing was, well, you know, uh, medicine stopped working after a while and you have to move on to a new one. So it's great. Like you can rediscover a cure in the past that has since become available to work again. But secondly, it really showed that like what we consider magic, what we consider potions, it's like, well, the reason that they're singing is because if you sing a song so many times, you know about how long it takes to sing that song before you had a kitchen timer to put on, you know, 15 minutes. Uh, for something like that. And so I find that type of stuff fascinating, how people used to meter their time that I'm sure Mississippi or other, you know, uh, things were used much more frequently before, you know, everybody had, you know, <laughs> essentially atomically accurate uh, time being beamed to their, their uh, supercomputer in their pocket. Dude, isn't that insane how the, the radio... I bought a a projection alarm clock recently, so and I was setting it up, and it's and 
there's a step in there to where it has to synchronize with the radio signals that are sent out on you know every such and such interval right or you know eventually hooked up and worked or whatever right but i was just thinking like that's extremely extremely accurate and it's just zipping through uh, allegedly right it's extremely accurate zipping through uh you know subspace or whatever like radio yeah, they're, they're super accurate i mean the timing delay is going to be that of the radio transmission itself but you know uh that system is timed off of uh an atomic clock yeah there's actually been a lot of issues with that because i know that there was risk uh five years or plus back of it getting defunded and no longer becoming a uh thing because you know it's essentially used by you know casio watches and you know tons of other uh, clock manufacturers and they don't pay anything for it maybe we'll have to go back to listen we live in a magical world you have atomic time being beamed directly to you you know you can you can turn on fm radios being beamed through your body you know every single hd satellite channel every single cell phone streaming god knows what is uh you know it's all it's all right around you probably giving you cancer and going through oh yeah it's going through you too <laughs> Can be anyway if you let it. I think that uh, it, I'm it, dosing myself in Wi-Fi. Only if you, if you, only if you consent, right? I think. Well, you, no, dude. Think about this. Um, I, I shouldn't say everybody. I think the evidence is out there that cell phones cause cancer. The the most uh, intriguing evidence to me is simply that if you look at brain tumors that are located on either the left or the right side of the head. Um, they are statistically correlated to, uh, which side of your head you hold a cell phone to. So there yeah. could be other correlations, but you know, it is microwave radiation that is coming out. We know that it can't be harmful on things. Um, and we're, it's so good. Like the drug is so good. The little pictures that we're looking at are so addictive that we do not care. Hey, your phone's got cobalt and all these other chemicals that are like, you know, mined out of the earth by children, you know, by people in slave labor. You and me are both complicit and okay because we own the technology. It, it is. We are so deep within the culture. Uh, it's crazy, man. Everybody's got their own little black mirrors. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Speaking of of tablet, ooh, it's a good good segue. Speaking of tablet sized things, this n- next story has to do with a recently discovered clay tablet, which features the Pythagorean theorem. But uh, the tablet is older than Pythagoras by about a thousand years. So, Adam, you're familiar with the Pythagorean theorem, right? One of the few theorems I'm actually familiar with. Okay, so it'll it'll uh, so you, you yeah you know it's you know what this is is talking about then. So uh, this is from the listeners. What's that? I said, do the listeners know? Well, they're about to learn if we have any. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. Uh, yes, this is uh, from iflscience.com so uh, study math for long enough 
and you will likely have cursed Pythagoras's name or said praise be to Pythagoras if you're a bit of a fan of triangles. But while Pythagoras was an important historical figure in the development of mathematics, he did not figure out the equation most associated with him, which is a squared plus b squared equals c squared. In fact, there is an ancient Babylonian tablet by the catchy name of IM67118, which uses the Pythagorean theorem to solve the length of a diagonal inside of a triangle. The tablet, likely used for teaching, dates from 1770 BC, centuries before Pythagoras was born, around 570 BC. Another tablet, from around 1800 to 1600 BC, has a square with labeled triangles inside. Translating the markings from base 60, which is the counting system used by the ancient Babylonians, showed that these ancient mathematicians were aware of the, Pe the Pythagorean theorem, not called that, of course, as well as other advanced mathematical concepts. The conclusion is inescapable. The Babylonians knew the relation between the length of the diagonal of a square and its side. Uh, this was probably the first number known to be irrational. However, this in turn means that they were familiar with the Pythagorean theorem, or at the very least, with its special case for the diagonal of a square, more than a thousand years before the great sage for whom it is named. So, excuse me, why did this get attributed to Pythagoras? No original writing from Pythagoras survives. What we know of him was passed on by others, in particular the Pythagoreans, members of a school he set up in what is now modern-day southern Italy. The school, named the Semicircle of Pythagoras, was secretive, but knowledge learned there or discovered was passed on and often attributed to the man himself. One reason for the rarity of Pythagoras' original sources was that Pythagorean knowledge was passed on from one generation to the next by word of mouth, as writing material was scarce. Moreover, out of respect for their leader, many of the discoveries made by the Pythagoreans were attributed to Pythagoras himself. This, account, this would account for the term Pythagoras' theorem. Although, although, though Pythagoras did not come up with the theory, his school certainly popularized it, and it became associated with him for the next few thousand years, at least. So, this also ties into ceremonial magic, believe it or not. Kind of. At least the history of magic, anyway. Because Pythagoras was not only interested in just the... Uh, qualitative, or I'm sorry, the quantitative aspects of math and numbers. He was also very interested in the qualitative aspects of numbers, right? So uh, I thought, because uh, in, in, in the spirit of, of learning and expansion, and just because I think uh, it's cool to learn a little bit more about Pythagoras, oh, excuse me, uh, I thought I would share a couple pages from Robert M. Place's 
the tarot, magic, alchemy, hermeticism, and neoplatonism. Textbook, essentially, is what this is. So, it is a history book. And uh, there's a little blurb, a couple pages about Pythagoras. So, Before I delve into that, Adam, was a uh, pretty... Pretty shocking to know that uh, Pythagoras did not actually come up with this. No, burst your math bubble. No, not not to me. But that's just because mathematics are just, you know, a way of of arranging numbers and viewing things. Uh, it's there. It's 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 like trying to discover something that already is. You know, it's not like you're creating or making or manufacturing something brand new. You're going. Hmm how how do i figure out an answer to this using you know numbers so yeah i i don't know to me if you look at uh, just ancient technology ancient building um the the way that things were done celestial the amount of mathematics that uh were utilized in ancient times um i, I would say to some degree i'm i'm there's no way that we haven't lost some incredibly important knowledge. And I say lost, meaning, you know, it's not that it was discovered. We just don't know it now. Yeah, yeah these are uh, concepts which are eternal. They are uh, omnipotent, right? So certainly yeah exactly exactly the pythagorean theorem in this universe as we know it is it exists because it of course that is interesting i guess with consciousness with somebody to view what's going on you know it's yeah it's kind of like uh if you have a map and you're laying down a compass or a you know uh, i'm trying to think of all the like little um, drafting tools that you use, the little plastic shapes that you, you know, put down for figuring out little, for right. figuring out angles. Biograph? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, kind of, but you know, the things that like one of them yeah. looks like a D so you can draw certain arcs and, you know, uh, different protractor. degrees. Yeah, protrate. Yeah, yeah. So all that kind of stuff. It, 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 to me, it's the same type of thing. Like, that's just there measuring what already is. So, you look at the world, eventually you're going to rediscover that. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I remember taking, I took trigonometry, I think it's just in high school. Yeah, it was only in high school. And uh, I don't know, I enjoyed it. Uh, do you have any, I don't know, what's your opinion on geometry or trig? Because I think that the theorem was covered in. Yeah, no, geometry, I mean, look, that's the heart of the universe. Everything is geometry. made from, from atoms and molecules and things that are put together in geometric patterns and structures. And if you look at just uh, the sacred geometry, sacred geometry sounds woo-woo, but really it's just a representation of uh, the universe that we live in. That when you break things down, things tend to fall into these numerical sets, into these, you know, like the golden ratio. It just, it's there, it's baked into existence. In fact, what's really fascinating is uh, Concrete Podchecks, uh, the Concrete Podcast just did an episode um on ancient technology in egypt and i forget the name's guest um ben i think uh, i'll look it up here in a minute um he uh he examined these 
incredibly accurately built stone vases that have been found in Egypt. And they are, I encourage people to go out and watch this video. Um, it is built so accurately. Um, and we're talking down to like fractions of a hair, like a human hair width over the entire thing with multiple representations of sacred geometry built into it. Nobody knows what these do, but they are built so accurately with such an amazing technology that uh, even to do that today would be a monumental task if if even able to be done. Um, let me pull that up here real quick. So did you, when you took trig or geometry in school, did you enjoy the class at the time? I wasn't smart enough for those classes. <laughs> I never made it. Uh, I think I did a summer statistics course to get my math pre, you know, prereq or prereq requirement fulfilled for. for oh, explain my, that. Sorry. For uh, for my philosophy degree, but yeah. Anyway, did you find it? I did. It's Ben Van Kirkwick: Evidence for Super Advanced Ancient Technology, which is once you watch it, it, it it's one of the greatest podcasts i've watched um but he goes through just like look here's how they built things here's what we found uh here's the mathematics represented in it um you tell me how it was built type of thing so uh this this guy is uh if you're looking at ancient technology um oh man i, I love this guy maybe even more than randall carlson what what did I just say what I said? <laughs> okay, so I will uh, I will include Adam's link in the show notes for everyone. Um, the other links which I am sharing can be found in our Telegram group. So uh, if you're looking for source links, go to the Telegram group, and I will that is. Uh, will be linked in the show notes as well so uh, but yeah um with that being said let's learn a little bit more about pythagoras you've got what is this two and a half pages so not not too long uh, so once again this is from robert m place the he starts out with the greek the Greek mysteries were a major influence on the Western practice of white magic, and one of the first groups of magicians to be influenced was the mystical school of philosophy founded by Pythagoras. So uh, just a side note here, differentiating between white magic and black magic. Okay. We commonly think of Pythagoras as a great mathematician who was credited with the geometric theorem for determining the relationship of the area of a squared side's the areas of the squared size of a right triangle. The square of the hypotenuse of a right triangle is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. All of our information about Pythagoras, however, comes from authors that lived in the centuries after his death, and we cannot be certain if all of the things attributed to him are true, including whether or not he developed the theorem that is named after him, which we now know he did not. So, update. 
Check back. And uh, spoiler alert: the other guy probably didn't either. Oh yeah, we don't we don't know about him. Uh, what was written about Pythagoras is that he was the first person to call himself a philosopher, which was a title more like sage or mystic at the time, and that he was interested in the symbolism of numbers as he was in their use in geometry. He also saw a connection between music and numerical order, and this type of reasoning led to sacred geometry. In the ancient world, he was spoken of with reverence and awe. It is said that he had a golden thigh, that he could be in two places at one time, that he could charm animals, and that he could remember his past lives. Many believed he was a god, or at least an enlightened master. Hey, we're talking about Hamas. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having computer issues. It's okay. We just got to... I'll leave that that alone. Yeah, so uh, many believed he was a god or at least an enlightened master. In the 3rd and 4th centuries, the earliest Neoplatonic authors, Prophery and Iamblichus, wrote biographies of Pythagoras. Iamblichus was heavily influenced by Pythagoras and attempted to write a 10-volume encyclopedia on the older philosopher, who preceded him by over 800 years. Because of his interests, because of this interest, Neoplatonists may also be thought of as Neo-Pythagoreans. In his biography, Iamblichus tells the story of Pythagoras's birth. Pythagoras's father has a really weird name. Uh, I'm going to do my best here. Nesarush. So uh, he'll just go by Pythagoras' father from here on out. Uh, So he was a merchant and an inhabitant of the Aegean island of Samos, a rich Greek trading center that had trading ties with Egypt and the Levant. While on a business trip, Pythagoras' father uh, visited the Oracle of Delphi to ask advice about a trip to Syria. The Oracle told him if he told him it would be a successful business trip, but then went on to predict that his wife, Perennis, Perenthinus, was pregnant, and that by the time he returned, she would have given birth to a son who would surpass all others who had ever lived in beauty and wisdom, and that would be of the greatest benefit to the human race in everything pertaining to human achievements. When he returned from his successful trip to Syria, Pythagoras's father found that he did have a beautiful son. He named the boy Pythagoras in honor of the Pythian Apollo who had spoken to him through the oracle. His wife also changed her name to Pythias to honor Apollo, and they erected a temple to the god. Pythagoras' father spared no expense in his son's education and secured the wisest teachers. When Pythagoras was 18 years old, the tyrant Polycrates took over the rulership of Samos, and Pythagoras left his home to continue his studies elsewhere. He went to 
Syros, S-Y-R-O-S, uh, to study with the philosopher Pharisees, and then to Miletus to study with Anaximander and Thales, whom Aristotle considered to be the first philosopher in the Greek tradition. I believe it's referring to Anaximander in that sentence, not Thales. After teaching him all that he could, Thales earned, urged Pythagoras to go to Egypt to study with the priests at Memphis and then the priests of Zeus. Then Iamblichus tells us that Pythagoras returned home and prepared for a voyage to Egypt. On the way to Egypt, he stopped in Syria and in Phoenicia. After having learned all he could of the Phoenician mysteries, he determined that they were based on the Egyptian rites and that he needed to complete his voyage. To accomplish this, Pythagoras sat in meditation on Mount Carmel, which was considered sacred, another example of the Axis Mundi, until a ship arrived that was bound for Egypt. The sailors on the ship agreed to take Pythagoras with them, but secretly planned to sell him into slavery when they arrived. However, Pythagoras sat in meditation and fasted for the entire trip, and the sailors believed that it was his influence that helped them avoid the storms that were predicted. They suspected that he was a god, and when they arrived in Egypt, they led him ashore and erected a temporary altar in his honor, complete with offerings of fruit. Once among the Egyptians, Pythagoras visited all of their temples and studied with all of their priests and prophets. He spent 22 years studying astronomy and geometry and was initiated in all of their mysteries. 22, it's an interesting number. It is known as the master builder number. In the end of this period, or at the end of the period, he was captured by soldiers and taken as a prisoner to Babylon. But again, fate turned in his favor, and he was able to study with the Magi. At the age of 56, he returned to Samos, where he set up his first school and began to share his wisdom. While in Greece, he visited all of the oracles and mysteries and developed a reputation for learning. At home on his island, however, he was dissatisfied with the Simeon's lack of interest in learning. He was dissatisfied with the Simeon's lack of interest in learning and the demands that they made on him to participate in public affairs. Ah, uh, yes, the plight of the philosopher king. He moved, therefore, to Croton in southern Italy, which at the time was held by the Greeks, and set up a new school of philosophy, open to both men and women. Initiates to the Pythagorean school were first vetted by examining their behavior and interests. Once admitted, there was a probationary period of three years in which they studied and were observed, but otherwise neglected. All of their property became the property of the commune. In the next stage of their probation, the initiates had to refrain from speaking for five years, maintain a vegetarian diet, abstain from wine, and shun wealth 
and greed. At the end of this period, they were either accepted as disciples or rejected and sent away with twice the amount of property as they had bought or brought with them. The ones who advanced to become disciples were given white robes and were permitted to speak but maintained the other prohibitions. These disciples were called, I'm going to do my best here, akousmatikoi, or hearers. They were provided with daily lectures, physical exercise, and rituals. They also practiced silent contemplation and a type of meditation. Their meditation focused on memory. In the morning, when they awoke, the akutashmatikoi, I didn't take Greek at all, so. <laughs> uh, they would systematically remember everything that was said and done on the previous day, and everything that was dreamed during the night. The innermost disciples were called matematikoi, like mathematics, like matematikoi, M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-K-O-I. Uh, their study focused on the numerical harmonies of the cosmos, a name that Pythagoras coined, meaning both order and beauty. And lastly, Pythagoras taught that on a deep level, all reality is mathematical, which is the cornerstone of all Western scientific thought. Yet for him, the symbolism of numbers was of equal importance. He also believed that numbers and ratios could capture the beauty that we express in music and architecture. Pythagoras believed in reincarnation and taught that humans are on an endless wheel of incarnations, each life doomed to end in suffering and death. To escape this dilemma and merge into union with the divine, it was necessary to practice contemplation and to live a moral life. This was the purpose of philosophy. In this respect, his teachings were similar to those of Buddha, who lived and taught in the same century, or I'm sorry, the same, yeah, same century in what is now Nepal and northern India. So instead of thinking of Pythagoras as an ancient mathematician or a philosopher, it would be more accurate to think of him as a Western Buddha. This would be closer to how the people of the ancient Greek and Roman worlds viewed him. That is our uh, little lesson on Pythagoras. Bet you didn't know a bunch of that stuff. That the uh, initiation sounds kind of a kind of harsh. Can't talk. No vegetarianism. Vegetarian. No wine. Good stuff. Good stuff. It's a commitment. It is. And, uh, yeah, so more numbers are, are more than just uh, qualitative. Qualitative, right? They have a no, quantitative. They are also qualitative. Look at those two words confused. They're so closely spelled alike. So probably not the last we will hear. Um, Mr. Place, uh, because this is a good book. 
to uh, to reference in regards to the history of, of the evolution of ideas, specifically Neoplatonism. It's a big book. I'm going to put it down now. I don't think that I mentioned this. Uh, speaking of books, uh, but for the sword seg or the uh, yeah the sword segment, we're still we're going to uh, continue our reading of the twelve divine virtues. Uh, the wisdom chapter out of the 12 divine virtues by fortune day Saint Germain. so that will be uh, coming up here in just a few minutes let's see what else we got uh, going sticking with the uh the magic theme tying in magic and technology i think adam will get a kick out of this sending it your way now this is from res obscura and it has to do with translating Latin demonology manuals with GPT-4 and Claude. So these are language learning models. And uh, Adam, have you heard about this before? Yeah, let's teach the uh, AI overlords demonology. That sounds amazing. What could go wrong? So uh, all we need to do is just get uh, paired up with that DARPA robot that... Uh powers itself off of decaying flesh and uh we're set the apocalypse is here yeah I, I saw that story i can't believe i didn't save it um yeah they were trying to downplay it they're like yeah don't 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 look over here right i don't know what what the official uh look bill time doesn't exist it's already happened anyways dude i was telling myself earlier that none of this is real like none of this is none of this is real <laughs> all goes away when you die uh, but you don't right uh so uh the uh despite the the yeah, i'll let you know bill <laughs> you will yeah see you on the other side is that what that means probably not um despite the the uh the chicken crossing the road this uh, despite the tantalizing headline uh, this this article is really more about research methodology and how um, useful it is in translating just any old text with uh, GPT-4 versus Claude, right? So this is more of a research methodology commentary article. But uh, it's still interesting, none the least. None the, none the least. So... This is by Benjamin Breen. He says, sure, AI tools like GPT-4 are fun and interesting, but are they practical? Can they help us to do something truly useful, like, say, translate a 1,200-page book about demons written by an obscure 16th-century Jesuit theologian? Let's find out. <laughs> so he does uh, three tests in in this article he talks about and the test test number one is called noonday demons of the libyan desert and this is from a book in uh written 1599 uh but so to to preface with this he starts out with it's clear that gpt-4 from OpenAI and claude from anthropic are skilled translators however we are just beginning to get a sense of how LLM-assisted translation will augment human researchers. 
it seems to me that GPT-4 and Claude both bring three things to the table which we haven't seen before. One, their ability to make educated guesses based on imperfect source material, such as the garbled text that results from using optical, optical character recognition, OCR, on pre-modern printed books. Two, their knowledge of historical context. Unlike purpose-built translators like Google Translate, LLMs have extensive, though imperfect, training data about the historical circumstances in which a text was written. And lastly, number three, summarization and analysis. This is key for historians. A lot of the work I did for my first book, which included nine months of research in Portuguese archives, was skimming through medical manuals written in early modern Portuguese, Latin, Spanish, or French. I was mostly searching for references to medical drugs from outside Europe, and sometimes there would only be one or two such references in a book of 600 or more pages. Being able to photograph and OCR each page of such a book, then ask an LLM to skim through it and let me know which pages mentioned something related to this research interest would have been a game changer. To test out these capabilities, I asked GPT-4 and Claude to translate a randomly chosen passage from a 1599 book about demonology, Magical Investigations, by Martin Del Rio, or Del Rio, a Dutch Jesuit of Spanish descent. So it actually had a Latin uh, title, obviously, being that old, and uh, I don't speak Latin. Uh, but it is quoted here in the text, or the article. Uh, if the title makes you think of a Renaissance version of Ghostbusters, you aren't far, far off. Del Rio was a committed believer in witchcraft, necromancy, and demon summoning, and regarded his book as a kind of guide for how, to, for how best to combat these dark arts. Demonology is a topic I've been interested in ever since I read Stuart Clark's brilliant thinking with demons. However, it's also one I find intimidating to do real research in, since so many of the sources involved are written in highly erudite form of Latin. I can read Latin at an intermediate level, but these books tend to be challenging, mixing obscure biblical or Kabbalistic references with complex theological reasoning. So, how do the two leading LLMs do? when presented with a random passage from page 330 of this edition of uh, Magical Investigations. I made no effort to clean up the text that I fed them. Instead, I copy and pasted OCR'd text direct from Google Books, errors and all. Uh, and he has a couple uh, images here. The left column here is what I asked them to translate, and it's just a picture of the book. It's text, an open page. Uh, it's got uh, split into two columns with the title across the top. It's just a regular looking uh, book page, except it's kind of discolored because it's super old and it's in Latin. So. It's still legible, though. I mean, it's it's printed. It's not uh, you know translated by hand, written out by hand, right? So uh, post printing press it seems. 
you can read ChatGPT's chat. You can read GPT-4's complete translation of this passage in my initial prompt here. There's a text link. Uh, this this was a mixed bag. It certainly helped me make sense of the passage, which relates to the famous noonday demon mentioned in Psalm 91, but it got confused by the reference to the biblical Hebrew in the second sentence. The creative mode for Bing Chat, which is a specialized version of GPT-4, did a bit better. Uh, when reading, keep in mind that the brackets are not my writing, but the AI's own explanation of ambiguous passages. So I'm not going to read uh, the passages. Uh, maybe maybe we'll read one, but there's two of them here that he cites or he provides uh, for our perusal, and one is from the Bing Creative Mode, and then the other one is from uh, Claude Two. And he says that when I fed the same prompt to Claude Two, it offered offered up what seems to me the best translation of all. Uh, and then I will yeah so. Maybe we should read that. So the translation mode for just so you can uh, get an idea of how he summarizes this at the end. I guess we will go through this real quickly. But so the translated page says, "For as it is said elsewhere, God inflicts the assaults, i.e., plagues, through evil angels, as." we see from Solomon and others, but the last two refer to demons rather than diseases. Although the two kemets, dots, it should be read with the Masoretes, medieval scholars who produced an authoritative Hebrew text of the Bible as Devar, word, thing, with six points, which they take to mean demon, not death or plague, as in Exodus 9.3 where Jerome and Vatablus, French biblical scholar, translate the term. Certainly the Vulgate, Latin Bible, alone reads Devar as also the 70, Septuagint Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so the, the brackets is actually the you can't see this, I know, but so so it said the Vulgate, is, and then brackets is Latin Bible. This is the uh, Claude two going in and and filling in uh, what Vulgate is, given the context that it has available to it that it knows about already, right? So it's explaining what Vulgate is, and it does the same thing for seventy, which is is uh, Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, right? It was the accepted books of the Bible were called the Septuagint, which is just 70, right? So it gave that uh, historical context for for the, the, the title of the book, right? So this is an example of how um, useful the uh, LLM can be. Um, continuing with the, with the passage, just because it's interesting who gets to read from a 1599 book right well, so uh, as for demon 
Oh, and it also he also gives uh, explanations of who Jerome and Batablus are, which are both uh, biblical scholars, right? So that was kind of neat. Uh, but continuing here, as for demon, although I like Jerome taking it clearly to mean manifest assaults by demons, still I think it most true what Basil and Theodore handed down in their commentaries that a psalmist spoke according to the opinion commonly held among many both then and now that there are certain demons of noontime. This is also referred to in the commentary on the Psalms attributed to Jerome. I will say what I think about this. First, incursion, quotes, signifies a violent, fierce, open attack and unprovoked assault. For in Hebrew, it is from Hebrew word, that is from ruin, as Aronbius, early Christian apologist, has overthrow, destruction, devastation. In Greek, it is a Greek word, uh, which means fracture or collapse, which others interpret as destruction, others as death, dying together, and at the same time collapsing. Hence, I understand the phrases incursion and demon as used idiomatically to mean an onset by a demon. Thus, Aquila and Symmachus, Greek Bible translators, rightly translated the phrase. Third, excuse me. Third, I think the noonday demon is called such for two reasons. First, because demons were believed to dwell in deserted places, which is why in the Old Testament, noon and wilderness are often used for the same thing. Thus, I think noonday demon and demon of the wilderness are the same. Whence we read that the greatest multitude of every fierce demons, of very fierce demons, live in the garden where the tomb of Janus and Jambres, mythical Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses, was, as Palladius relates in his work on Maracarius. And we gather from Dionysus of Lydia's history that a kind of demon called Lamia lived in the Libyan deserts, where even today many specters, ghosts, appear. In summary, this passage discusses the biblical reference to demons as referring idiomatically to fierce demonic attacks according to ancient traditions. It explains how the noonday demon refers to demons believed in ancient times to haunt deserted places, based on the association of noon and wilderness in the Bible. So that little summary that was just given was was the Claude two providing you know providing the summary. So that was not the uh, the author here, uh, but he does talk about it. He says, "Note the excellent summary, and also the helpful explanations in brackets." For instance, I would have had to look up who Janus and Jambres are. Here we are told by the AI itself that these are the names of Egyptian magicians from the biblical book of Exodus. All in all, this was an extremely challenging translation assignment involving not just early modern Latin, but also words in Hebrew and ancient Greek. Claude did a remarkable job. So, the other two tests are... Uh, 
uh, done where he asks, oh, I'll just read it here, uh, it's listing types of demons, and this is where Claude's far larger context window clearly wins out over GPT-4. He says, I experimented with simply dropping significant blocks of OCR text from Del Rio's book into Claude. I asked for a table of different types of demons mentioned in the text along with the corresponding page number. Uh, sure enough, when you, when you check page 4247 of the book, you find this reference to uh, the devil, the central. Uh, in other cases, however, the chart lists the wrong page number. I suspect this was an OCR issue. The page numbers in this edition of the book are often smudged or misprinted, and thus many did not transcribe properly. I think charts and summaries like the above are what will end up being a game changer for anyone who does research in multiple languages. It's not about getting the AI to replace you. Instead, it's asking the AI to act as a kind of polymathic research assistant to supply you with leads. And the uh, third and final test he does, and we won't get into it, is, is an obscure Portuguese medical text. Right, so um, to, to end the story, though, he says, my takeaway from all this is that LLM-assisted translation and analysis of primary sources will end up being an extremely useful tool for historical researchers and translators, but it will be just that, a tool not a replacement. So there, there's some silver lining right there. Is it's 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 a, it's not a replacement, right? No need to to worry about the uh, AI taking our jobs, right? Well, let me let me add to this something that I find very interesting that started to happen with AI. And it's it's I, I forget what they're they're referring to it as, but Essentially, AI has become prolific in art and being put up on the internet and being utilized by everybody. Um, but it's training itself off of what? Because before the AI models were out there in the wild, it's training itself 100% based on humans. Now humans are using the technology, getting images with people like with six fingers, plugging them back in, and then the system is not good at knowing what's AI. And then it's sucking it back in. And I suspect the same type of thing is going to happen with texts and stuff. So, um, you know, it may be a system that only works on information that has provenance. Yeah, it's completely dependent on who is feeding the information into. Yeah, the but if it's feeding off of itself, then it's just going to be regurgitating, you know, uh, diluted garbage. feeding off of it so that would mean it would yeah well because think about this so it's 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 going all over online and it's skimming all the pictures like you probably saw that thing where you know one of the ai models was uh putting uh getty images uh logos in part of its images because it had sucked up so many of them that it was incorporating it as part of like the 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 images it would show up um so it's that type of thing where now you have an ai image out there it's assuming it's humans so it's trying to give you the best represented model of what a human could do um but then it's got an AI image that's already gone through that amalgamation. It's already had some mistakes, some adjustments, and then it's sucking it in, assuming that it's produced by a human. Huh. So it's kind of like 
uh, making a photocopy over and over again. Yeah, okay. you're you're losing the originality. Yeah, wonder how they got around that with cloning. I wonder how Dolly, that lamb, remember that lamb back in the what was it the eighties? It got cloned. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting enough that one of the big language uh, AI models out there is called Dolly. D A L L E. Oh, that's how you say it. I was <laughs> pronouncing it like dally or something in my head i didn't i didn't put that two those two together yeah i i assume that it's uh a reference in its acronym to that probably who knows what the reds are up to um speaking of well not not speaking of actually some more light-hearted uh headlines headline story last one for for this week's uh, segment, it has to do with c- cats. Adam and I are both cat fans. I have three of them. Adam, <laughs> Adam is also a proud cat dad. Well, so uh, put that in the chat for you. This is from ABC News. Cats among mammals that can fluoresce. New study finds fluorescent compounds were found in bone teeth claws, fur, feathers, and skin. Okay, so before we get started, this story... Save your cat, have a glow party. No, 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 no. No. Listen, what I do with my cats... um, um, uh, My recent serial killer. No. With uh, with my recent trip up to um, Michigan... We were looking for Uper lights using the UV flashlight. And a Uper light, for anybody that doesn't know, is a rock that fluoresces when hit with ultraviolet light. And it's it's a very bright, like orange. There's other colors, things that fluoresce too, but Uper light is, is, is a very, very noticeable, right? So we're scanning the beach and uh, we're looking for Uper light. We're finding, actually, we're finding some, right? And I scan out a little bit further, like towards the water. Uh, nearer towards the water and i see something i think it's like a green color uh, some very very different light up right it wasn't uper light but it was definitely fluorescing so i go over there and pick it up and it's a tooth speaking of serious awesome. colors yeah it's a tooth and i a freaked out tooth? for a second no because i was like wait a second is this human but no i looked looked at it closer and uh definitely uh, some kind of cat tooth if i had to guess uh, it looks like maybe a bobcat or or some medium-sized that's awesome animal like that so yeah that was like one of the first things that we found on our yeah first, listen first those, those uh fluorescent lights are awesome you can get them super cheap online um but a lot of animals will fluoresce i know that from my experience i found rats running across power lines and possums um fluoresce in like a pinkish hue when exposed to uv light kind of in the same way that uh not to the extreme, probably because it's fur and translucent, um, but uh, like a scorpion glows. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the, uh, I've noticed that the biotic substances are, are definitely like glowy, glowy looking. I could tell like there were like trails of, I don't know what it was, some kind of sand flea or something on the beach it was like blue sand please yeah there was just very fine you know little grains of leftover 
bio material or whatever or whatever the animal bug thing was but this is kind of an odd story i know we've talked about uv lights on the show before and uh i want to uh, we'll bring it up again when derek is, is back with us but uh yeah this is just a weird story to put out at this time i don't know why they're doing uh is this a study well let's find out here that's uh, from london apparently so uh, over the last few years, fluorescence under ultraviolet lights has been reported among many animals, including birds, reptiles, insects, and fish. However, not much has been known about the frequency of fluorescence among mammals until now. In a new study published today by researchers from the Western Australian Museum and Curtin University, fluorescence among mammals was found to be extremely common. Researchers studied 125 mammal species. This is hilarious to me because all they did is took a flashlight in their museum. <laughs> you know what I mean? What's Anybody the frequency of uh, light that we need to put out? Get the device and walk around doing some like, uh, like that old video game where you'd run through the museum with the flashlight. Oh yeah, but yeah, you're exactly right though because it says the next so 125 mammal species, both preserved and frozen. So yeah, where are they? Where else would you keep a bunch of preserved animals, except in a museum, right? Or maybe they went to a taxidermist. But then I don't know. Anyway, uh, were held in museum collections for the presence of apparent fluorescence under UV light. Finding apparent fluorescence in all mammal specimens investigated to varying degrees. So yeah, they were in a they were in a museum. These include domestic cats or Felis catus, among other, along with polar bears, bats, mountain zebra, wombats, dwarf spinner dolphins, leopards, and Tasmanian devils. Uh, fluorescent compounds were found in bone, teeth, claws, fur, feathers, and skin. Uh, the fluorescent colors observed uh, were red, yellow, green, pink, and blue. Uh, they say we are quite curious to find out about fluorescence in mammals uh, by using the spectrophotometer in the School of Molecular and Life Sciences at Curtin University, we were able to measure the light that was emitted from each specimen when exposed to UV light. Scientists explain that fluorescence is a result of a chemical on the surface of a mammal, such as a protein or a carotenoid that absorbs light before emitting it at a longer and lower energy wavelengths, often a pink, green, or blue. Uh, the platypus, one of Australia's most treasured species, was also found to fluoresce under UV light. Today, or to date, reports of fluorescence among mammal have been limited to a relatively small number of species, the study's authors said. Here, we are able to reproduce the results of these previous studies and observe apparent fluorescence in additional species. We report fluorescence for 125 mammal species. Uh, the most fluorescent animals were found to be all white or with lighter colored fur, which represented 107 out of 125 species. Fluorescence, however, was more masked by uh, melanin in mammals with darker fur, such as the Tasmanian devil. 
So it's probably present in a lot more animals, but you don't see it. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty or much. Or at least at the sensitivities that they're testing, because one of the interesting things is, I mean, UV is seen by many animals that have the ability to see that spectrum. We don't. So it's kind of like a dog whistle to your eyes, uh, you know, and there's so many other animals that are utilizing so many different spectrums that, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think like, Hey, why, why does this thing glow? Right. It's, they say that fluorescence was most common and most intense among nocturnal species mm -hmm. and those with terrestrial, arboreal and fossorial habits. Exactly. And who knows, maybe it's absorbing and re-reflecting that light uh, in the same way that like uh, soldiers during uh, Desert Storm would wear um, UV uh, glow sticks to identify them so that the enemy wouldn't be able to see them, but it would show up on the infrared uh, uh, or night vision cameras that they were using because it would be able to see the infrared light. It could be something uh, as simple as that. It's like uh, they, they use this in clothing all the time. I don't know if you're familiar with this bill where they take um and they they put in these dyes that when they get hit with UV light, they glow a little bit. So you can phosphoresce a lot of detergents or your clothes afterwards and they'll have an extra glow to them. And it's to make them look brighter during the day because it's emitting a brighter reflective light, converting that energy. And what's fascinating to me, at least, is they detect this in rivers. It's It's one of the easiest ways to detect water pollution because it's so ubiquitous in runoff water from from houses uh just soaps that they take tampons because they're you know uh, a very large absorbent cotton material that's got a strong string so they can tie them in the river and they let them sit there and these uh, these phosphorescent dyes will attach to the cotton and then they can take and just put a, a fluorescent light onto the cotton and determine whether or not there's uh pollution in the water that that is it's being used on you already man and you don't even know it i mean it's so simple and uh, it's kind of beautiful right uh, but it's it's funny that you say that because this this article ends with the study makes clear that fluorescent qualities are very common however scientists uh, say debate continues on if fluorescence has any particular biological function in mammals or if it is simply a result of their surface chemistry uh, for most fluorescent, for most fluorescent animals, there is insufficient information to evaluate, which I call BS on, because if you remember, and I know Adam does, because he recommended me this book, uh, The Field by Lynn McTaggart has a certain chapter in it, which we covered on like episode two, I think it was. Uh, we we the episode title is Beings of Light and Meat Loaf, and we talk about how the body uh, does emit a low uh, uh, bio photon emissions uh, low frequency uh, that detectable measurable and mm -hmm. we use a 380 nanometers is the wavelength of uv light that is used to pretty much uh, from what i understand and from what uh, i think uh, lynn mctaggart uh, wrote was that uh, we use it to pretty basically uh, grow new stem not stems they didn't say stem cells particularly but just my own words right but it's basically it regenerates the regeneration wavelength right the so, power of uv light is all around you i mean people use it in air conditioners for disinfecting and water systems water, yep. but i mean it's the oldest adage sunlight disinfects 
And it's true. And it also deters, right? It deters UV light could deter certain entities, allegedly, which is something I wanted to ask uh, Derek when he's available. Which I could say why he is is, is not been with us. He's uh, recently made an appearance on Crow Triple Seven Radio podcast. So go check that out if you haven't already. Um, but uh, he he opened up a second uh, location for his business enterprise called Bigfoot's Den. So uh, I won't say too much about it here because I kind of want him to talk about it when he's here next. But uh, that is why he hasn't been uh, available because he's got whole new building, a uh, different location. So he's juggling two two locations, two buildings. Uh, so the business is growing and expanding. So good good stuff. And speaking of expansion, right? This is the segment for expansion. So uh, yeah, we uh, wish Derek all, all the best luck in getting, getting new licenses and working around red tape of bureaucracy and trying to be a small business owner in this day and age. So uh, we'll get updates from him. Uh, maybe next week we'll see. We will see. Um, better work on say, or not saying ah. Uh. Which brings us to uh, the sword segment, where we have been reading from Fortune de Saint Germain's "The Twelve Divine Virtues," which is a book about the twelve divine virtues, wisdom being one of them. And that is the chapter which we have been reading from. So this book is a little bit different than your normal run-of-the-mill uh, prose book, I guess. It's a good, it's not a poem, right? It's prose. Well, this is, this is, I guess this would be more poem-like. So each page just has one sentence on it, or not even, you know, which maybe two. So a uh, very, very short book. It doesn't uh, take very long to get through. Uh, but these are just... Uh, sayings that uh, kind of describe or talk about the the quality of the virtue in which they're in which chapter they're attributed you know 12 of them so excuse me i'm trying to get my yoga ball lined up so i can sit down and read this and uh, we'll probably have time to finish it today so i think we ended on ooh, I don't uh oh man I should have I should have done this before the show. Okay, so we'll we'll start with a man's nature reveals himself in anger, wine, and gold. That's a Hebrew proverb. Some of these sayings he will attribute you know, he'll give credit, but uh, if he doesn't, I'm assuming that it's from him because it's his book, and that uh, that is the case for this next next saying. There's enough unhappiness being handed out. There's no reason to stand in line for more. If you know it's a locomotive, step off the tracks. Be careful when picking up someone else's garbage. You can't have the new until you rid yourself of the old. Mm. 
the lighthouse does not go searching for ships. Take only what you need, but nothing to waste. If God seems far away, who moved? Failure is illusion. With you, I'm sorry, failure is illusion. With me, you'll always succeed. And he attributes that to divine love. Always strive for harmonious living. Buddha. When someone understands, his response is silence, followed by thank you. In divine love, everyone always wins. He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 27. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. If you will it, it is not fable. Hebrew meditation fragment. The mystical journey is about living the indescribable. And the last one, love your I'd say that's pretty, pretty sage. No, that last one is uh, um, profound. Yeah, it struck me. It's a good one to end on, too. Yeah. Uh, the other one that popped out for me is... Where'd it go? I want to get this right. It's about picking up garbage. Be careful when picking up someone else's garbage. And if I had heard that, like... 15 years ago. <laughs> I got 13 questions just flooding back into my head right now. Sort topics like this, what makes me think of that show. So, um, not really sure what we're going to be doing for the sword segment heading on out. However, I was going to see if Adam would be interested in going through the uh, outwitting the devil uh dialogues with me we can do a two-part uh reading i can either send you pictures of the pages that we can get through or i can just send you a copy of the book via amazon or something that uh it's pretty much like a socratic dialogue so question and answer conversation type back and forth i thought uh, maybe we could have some fun with that and and i don't know if we want to read the whole thing i'll have to sit down and look at the book again but what do you think about that adam maybe we could just do little bits because there's two bits there's there's the big he begins with interviewing thomas edison right uh, in his mind or with 
astrally, I guess. And then uh, the, the majority of the book is him talking to the devil, which is probably what I would want to focus on more. But uh, yeah, what do you think? What do you think about that, Adam? Sorry, I've been on mute this entire time. No, I love it, dude. Absolutely. I think it's a great idea. I am so sorry. I've been talking this entire time. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. All right. So I will, uh, yeah, I'll just send you a copy, I think. It's uh, I don't know, probably like 12 bucks or something like that. But uh, yeah, um, maybe with, depending on how fast shipping is, um, we, we, we could be doing this next week. And uh if not, then I will come up with something something else, possibly another reading from uh, our friend Charles Hannell. So other people that we've covered now that we're so just to give people an idea uh, who haven't been following the show, uh, what we cover topics that we cover in this in in this sword segment, we've we've done uh, Neville Goddard. We did a lot of Neville Goddard. Of course, we did uh, Don Miguel Ruiz and and Four Agreements which is a big inspiration behind the, the structure of the show. And we've done Charles Hannell, who, who wrote The Master Key System, but we, we read from his book, uh, New Psychology. So uh, next we're going to, and then we're going to do Napoleon Hill. So uh, lots of uh, great, great thinkers, motivating list. thinkers. Yeah, yeah. And I thought uh, eventually I would like to play the, uh, that's 30 minutes, so it's kind of it's 15, 30 minutes. It's a longer clip of Earl Nightingale and his his challenge. Have you have you familiar with that, Adam? He's an old timey like radio TV. No, what's his name? Earl Nightingale. Yeah, I know the name. Yeah. Absolutely, but um, I I can't point the reference. I was just one of these. Maybe maybe next week we'll we'll see. But uh, I was just going to play that that clip as the segment because it's uh i don't know it's I, I whenever i'm reading something sometimes his his pace his tone his his you know pronunciation his rhythm like get it pops up in the back of my head and i start like you know instead of reading in your own voice or whatever you when you read to yourself read silently like you start i start reading in your old voice so it's kind of funny uh, speaking of reading, though, did you know that the, the libraries the libraries have evolved uh, to the point of no talking? And, and back in the day, like in, in the Library of Alexandria, per se, for, for example, uh, you would actually read out loud. I don't know if I mentioned this on the show before, but there were... Yeah, well, look, it's a, it's a great way to self-learn is to hear it and actually speak it a lot. I know myself, I learn things better that way. Um. And I, I imagine that to uh, a great deal of minds that were not proficient in reading, that it would probably be just a, like a benefit to to the majority of people during that time. Oh yeah, it's I mean certainly more it's practical because the there weren't you know mass produced copies of everything, so you know you can't the library the books in Alexandria never left Alexandria. I've heard two two story two accounts of them uh, confiscating every book that came into the port off the ships, and then they would they did confiscate that that did happen right, and then they would make a copy of the book, and they would either here's where the stories split they would either keep the original and give the copy back, 
or they would keep the copy and give the original back. I've heard, I've heard both, but uh, yeah, just from a practical standpoint, there's not a whole lot of these around. So if there was like a group of people that wanted to learn about something, they would all get together in a tiny enclave, little room in in the library, and they would, you know, it would be very loud in there because there's a bunch of people reading out loud. So just interesting. Uh, interesting factoid to end the show on i guess we're gonna we're gonna do a an early an early show we still got a good 90 minutes of content some good headlines and uh good little wisdom reminders for for you in this episode so if you if you oh you know what i almost forgot to do is tell you what the week's scalar energy sessions i haven't even signed up for this yet uh, so uh, because the show is sponsored by mysticalwares.com and i believe i don't believe i know that uh, scalar energy works uh, i like to to promote uh, derek's free remote scalar energy sessions uh, you must sign up each week uh, for these sessions and uh, they're they're conducted with the uh, rife frequency codes so this is based off of royal raymond rife's technology and uh, all you got to do is go to mysticalwares.com and scroll down to scalar healing and this page has lots of information on what exactly scalar energy is uh, more than i'm going to get into uh, right now uh, but this week's free session is digestion and gut health. So there's a little button you click that says sign up here and you complete the checkout process as if you're buying something. But since it's free, there's nothing in your cart. And then you get a uh, convenient text and or email reminder of when the session is going to start. and. Uh, yeah, sit back and relax. You don't have to do anything. It is completely free. All you got to do is sign up and sit back and soak up the benefits. So please, please remember to go and then do that. And while you're there, check out everything else he's got going on on the website. He's just uh, introduced an auction uh, feature for for uh, rocks and gems and minerals if you're into that type of thing. So yeah, spend some time on there and browse around a little bit. And uh, if you like, if you like the show, if you like what we're doing here, please uh, rate the show on whatever platform that you're using. And of course, uh, share the show a lot. Of, I know a lot of the podcasts I listen to, I didn't uh, hear or stumble upon them just from browsing around social media. Uh, although there are uh, one or two that I did find that way. Uh, but the majority of them were, were told uh, to me by somebody that I love, right? It was a, a recommendation from somebody that's close to me so uh, if, if this uh, working in these four steps that we're meeting and, and performing every week drives with you if it resonates with you please help spread the love whatever way you can uh, whatever way is most convenient for you and until next time chrononauts carpe diem